Well, hello. <laughs> wow. Uh, my name's Annabelle Crabb. I will be doing the talking this evening because Sales has nearly completely lost her voice because that's uh, the way we like to roll. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, she actually does have about 900 words left <laughs> and she's going to use them very judiciously. <laughs> One of them is, or a few of them are, stop being mean to me. <laughs> well, that won't stop. Um, have you seen, like, just stand up a bit again because, check this out, like, she does scrub up all right. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> huh? And um, she's got the stupidest shoes on in the history of shoe creation. It's now, true. I immediately recognised those shoes when I saw them. Oh. Because, do you remember wearing them to that... Yeah, you know what I'm going to say, right? I love how we actually brainstormed the opening out the back and out it had the window. nothing to do with this. <laughs> yes. If you look really carefully too, you can see her nude stocking halfettes. Look at that. See that? See that? Who does that? <laughs> it's just like in case she goes on a long-haul flight and she won't get one of those deep vein thrombosis things. I was admiring her legs before because I'm only human. I'm like, what's going on there? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, that's... Uh... See, no, nobody would have noticed that until you pointed it out because yeah. they would have been and distracted now by the nice see. shoes. But I was talking to my friend Sophie who actually... We should say thank you to our friends Dan and Sophie. Where are we they? We really should. Where are they? Yeah, because where are they? I don't know. But we're staying at their house and it is awesome. So... Uh, unfortunately, we will be murdering you in your sleep and uh, <laughs> well, they're taking very, over they're your house. They're very old friends of mine. Okay, and so but nothing to me. So yeah, you know, <laughs> so, they seem nice and all, but you know. so I rang my friend Dan and said, um, "Can I come and stay in your house with three complete strangers?" And they very kindly said yes, and we descended on them this afternoon. Um, so thank you to them very much for having us. Um, Dan said to me earlier, actually, um, "Hey, Salesy, I just want to check. There's." It's not going to be one of these audience participation things, is it, where I'm going to be, like, involved? Too See, bad. now I, I, I love doing that because I know Dan's now sitting there just, like, broken into a cold sweat. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not going to – don't worry, Dan. It's fine. Rest easy. Um, I was talking to Sophie, actually, about these sorts of shoes and I feel guilty sometimes because, to be completely honest, I only wear these kind of shoes – I wear them sometimes on telly if my feet are in shot because, you know, heels like this look nice but I, I basically can't – really walk anywhere in them. I put them on, like I have shoes that I take into the 7.30 studio, put on in the studio because they look nice on telly and I think it's probably a terrible thing to do because I send the message to people that shoes like this are actually practical or appropriate and they're really not. Sometimes I just think like I have a list of things that every now and again I just think, imagine trying to explain this to a visiting alien. Like, you're like well, sometimes a really tall woman will just like strap some spikes to her feet that are really <laughs> painful and hard to walk in. Not, not really for walking, just for sitting. And then occasionally, occasionally injudiciously wearing out to an exhibition opening, which is where I last saw those things, was like an Archibald Prize or something, was like a night out and salesies turned out like... <laughs> looking like a million bucks, but then like within ten minutes she's like, oh, Jesus Christ, I just, oh my God. My feet hurt so much. And then there were these interminable speeches that just went on and on. I was close to tears. And then our friend Margot, who's also here, couldn't remember where she parked the car. <sighs> so you're like, I think we actually did some sort of Facebook Live thing from that car park. Like, you note, know, like, I'm not even laughing. It was so <laughs> bad. Oh, God. Thanks for the ride, though, Margot. That really was <laughs> very handy that night. I'm sorry about uh, our rude mutual friend, <laughs> like, making out that it was some sort of terrible inconvenience for her.
Um, Look, it's not the shoes I like wearing, it's the knee highs. I like the support. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we were just realising that uh, we are the first show on in this theatre since Legally Blonde. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's good. Because Blake up the back on the sound desk directed it, so he'll be happy to hear that reaction. That's right. So we thought, you know, what could we call this show? Um, Crazily Brunette. Steadfastly ginger. Um, you just go with whatever you like. You de-gingered, though, during the years of the Gillard <laughs> Prime Ministership. I did. Did you know this for real? I, I did. For real? Because she I thought... She had to change her hair because otherwise people were like, I just, uh... Wait. Yeah. What started it was that some guy at the gym, I was on the treadmill and he walked past and he went, hey, it's Julia Gillard. And I just thought, oh, don't. So I went a bit um, – I actually had longer hair. I grew it out of the bob, went longer, went a bit blonder. And, but now I've gone back to the bob now that we don't see that much of Julia. She took my hair. Um, now, just before we sort of get down to business, because there's lots of interesting things to um, talk about, because I've not seen Annabelle Crabbe since she finished covering the royal wedding. And she's been actually, like, avoiding me so much. Like, we've had so little to do with each other that the other day you said something really nice to me on social media and I actually thought, God, are you all right? Yeah, she replied, like, you know, are you okay? I get disturbed when you're affectionate towards me. Um, Every time we do a live show, a percentage of the proceeds goes to a local charity. Um, And so my friend Dan suggested we asked some advice about what would be a good local charity around here. Um, And the answer was Barnardos, Western New South Wales. Um, So they do work to sort of help children and young people who are at risk. Um, They cover sort of a huge area um, out here. They do all sorts of things from, say, supporting, um, you know, offering intensive support to families where the kids are from zero to eight years old, where they might be at high risk of being removed. They get involved to try to see if they can prevent the kids from being removed. They've got another program called Beyond Barbed Wire, which um, tries to keep women who are incarcerated in Wellington Prison in touch with their children to keep those relationships going. So they do heaps of good work. So that is the charity that we are supporting from this show. Here, here. So we just had such a nice drive here today, actually. Um, We picked up sales from Sydney Airport. We were her driver um, while Gwen was driving and um, and Brenda, who some of you will know very well, um, although she was wearing, weirdly enough, a frog mask throughout most of the journey because she doesn't like to be recognised. And um, we stopped at a couple of places uh, we stopped in um, uh, Lithgow, uh, where... Um, Why did everyone, like, laugh? Like, oh. <laughs> That's not funny. That's not funny. So with Lithgow. I need to get some raspberries. It's got a perfectly lovely McDonald's. It, yeah. <laughs> and also, more pubs in the main street than any other Australian town I've ever been in. I'm just like, wow, they must be really pissed here. There was a the pub time. about every three minutes. It was so it was, good. I mean, we yeah. were obviously business, not pleasure, but, I mean, we could have spent a long time working our way up and down that street. Got the raspberries, no drama. Uh, Sales did a bit of, like, walking, like, removing the glasses, sunglasses, and walking through Lithgow Coles Complex, <laughs> just waiting for someone to recognise it. Not one single person. <laughs> happened to you in New York? What's that story? Oh, oh my God. I yeah, we're totally believe. off the rails now. I cannot believe the way you are humiliating me this evening. So, like, it's weird that you still can't <laughs> believe that after all this time. 
But this is a very unflattering story, all right? I'm the first to admit it. So... I just even the premise to set it up is just I'm so mortified I just hate myself to even share it I and we do get recognized a lot and so when you're in public people come up and they tap you on the shoulder and they go oh, you know hi blah 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 um like your show or whatever um you know love your show think kitchen cabinet's crap can you do something about that Annabelle crap I get that a lot um anyway I was in I was in uh New York at Christmas Hello. time <laughs> in a uh, bar and somebody behind me tapped me on the shoulder and I sort of composed my face into sort of pleasant, neutral about and thinking, you know, I'm about to say, oh, thanks so much, that's so lovely. Turned around and the person was just like, yeah, excuse me. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my God, I've become such a monster that I'm <laughs> in New York City thinking I'm about to be recognised. <laughs> and they're like, are you using that extra seat because... And- for some unknown reason, I shared that story very unwisely with Ms. Crab. Who laughed like a drain for quite a long time. Now, um, tell me about this covering the royal wedding, which I read in the Daily Telegraph involved you taking an all-expenses-paid-on-the-taxpayer luxury business class flight. She had, like, French champagne. She had her own masseur on the flight with her. Taxpayer-funded gigolo. She, it was, it was just, people were putting, like, strawberries in her mouth. It was absolutely luxury. (laughs) It's so funny because I was asleep. It was, like, 2 a.m. or something and my phone started going. And it was (laughs) somebody from ABC News and Current Affairs going, oh, just need to check something. Like, did you fly business class? My Wow, you people booked the tickets. You know I didn't fly business class. The <laughs> fair cost, I believe, eleven hundred dollars. It was like was actually, that return. It or? was the cheapest flight I think available in the entire world. Were you really, in the, like, for that price? Like, to, to London, were you in like the cargo hold? No, or? I was in. I was in. I was in a lovely seat with sort of bathroom glimpses, and <laughs> <laughs> anyway, God, it was funny. I, like, and then I'm like. What? What's this about? And like, well, the Daily Telegraph says that you've flown over business class and it's a disgrace. I'm like, what? It took 30 hours. I was in someone's lap. Like, <laughs> the, best, the best thing was she texted me and said, um, you know, I can't believe I'm getting beaten up for flying business class and I didn't even have the pleasure of flying business class. <laughs> but it was, it was, look, to be honest, it was like I'm not really a royal expert um, but it was just really interesting and great fun. But, like, lots – it was really, like, lots of work, like, long hours because, you know, um, there was just so much material and, you know, but also not very hard work. Like, it was just sort of interesting but, you know, easy to write and broadcast and whatever. So it was just, like – it was – it's so weird, though, because, like, you know, England is full of people who I suspect, like, he was like, oh, royal family, I don't know, not at my alley, you know, and then they're all – actually seriously wildly into it but like not very openly so like they'll all watch it and like you talk to people that oh no 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 I'm not into the royal family on Charles though (laughs) I really think anyway so I've got these like mad opinions so on the day of the actual wedding where was your broadcast spot (laughs) well so we were um so it's quite expensive uh, to broadcast. Like the, the palace sort of controls it. And if you wanted to be uh, like in the uh, bit where you can actually see anything, it's like £200,000 or something for the day. Yeah, it's heaps. And we thought that's where we were going to be until we found out that's how much it was. So we're like, well, uh, do you have any other properties to show us? <laughs> and so we were in a place called Home Park, which has got like 
excellent views of the castle, which is like, it's not nothing. Like, Windsor Castle is a, such a good castle. It is, like, I mean, there's heaps of them lying around, right? But this one's quite a good one. Like, it, was, it was built by William the Conqueror, like, which I think is a good, solid start. Uh, so it's more than a 1,000 years old. Um, and it's, uh, it's, um, the, long, it's the uh, most... It's the oldest consistently inhabited castle in Europe. And 500 people live there. I know, right? Who? Well, so beforehand, like we had Jenny Bond on our broadcast with us. So it was me and Jeremy Fernandez and Jenny Bond. And like Jenny Bond, she was the BBC royal reporter for the whole time during the full Charles Diana debacle like so she's front and center she's also like brilliantly barking in that way that you would be if you had that job for that length of time she's still a royal specialist like that's what she does but every now and again she breaks out and hosts you know the great british bake off or um no 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 she she does uh, the great british menu um and also she's been on like one or two reality like survivory type things as well she's excellent um so beforehand, I said to her, hey, look, I'm going to ask you who lives in Windsor Castle. She's like, well, the Queen. And I said, well, I, there's 500 people. Who else? And she's like, oh, I'm not sure. We should look that up, shouldn't we? And so um, we did. <laughs> and it's, it's full of all these sort of former courtiers and sort of mad distant cousins and like all of these palaces, like Kensington Palace is full of bonkers people like, you know, the Prince and Princess Michael of Kent. And I know... Wow, that lady. She's the one who's like, was a bit controversial when Meghan Markle first came to Christmas with the Queen, which apparently was like a huge concession because normally it's a no ring, no bring situation, the the royal Christmas. But uh, because Meghan Markle was in town and, you know, really had nobody else to hang out with at Christmas, I think they were worried that like it would be like, oh, Meghan left alone with a ready meal, like while the... I wonder if it's one of those things too where one of my friends once had this bit of advice where because you know how Christmas Day can get sort of tense because you're confined with your family for a long period of time and people can be on their bad behaviour and, you know. Um, the best way to mitigate against that is to drop in one stranger into the mix yeah. because then it, everyone's behaviour is tempered. So I wonder yes. if that happened with the royal. Although there's some real hints on how not to treat that stranger and one of them would be, I think, I mean... Tell me what you think. But uh, Princess Michael of Kent turned up to this show wearing a blackamoor brooch, which is like – it's like wearing a gollywog, basically, which was like – yeah, she had to apologise. She was like, oh, terribly sorry. <laughs> it was Dear. like incredibly – yeah. Okay, insensitive. so your broadcast spot has a view of Windsor Castle. Yeah, so lovely. And yeah, then that was nice. So just because I like to know the practical things, like what if – was there lots of media around – uh, so, yes, uh, so the more budget media, like, who had also opted not to be in the, like, super expensive location. I mean, like, this was a perfectly fine location and we were taking the BBC live feed. Like, they've got cameras inside the church which they then distribute to any other broadcasters. That's so you don't have, like, a 100 American broadcasters. There were so many American broadcasters. They were so great. It was just, like, they were 
some of them had actually, I think, bought whole buildings in Windsor. Like, they had so much money. They had, like, eight locations, including, like, four of the $200,000 spots. And there was one, I think it was NBC, that had built this huge structure. It was like Thunderdome on top of this house. So it had this huge towering view into the castle. It was just like... They were not kidding around with their coverage of that event because they're like, we've got an American princess here. American princess alert. Yeah, so they were just like, wow, everywhere. And they were so funny because you'd be like... Because, obviously, it's it's sort of nighttime in the UK when it's daytime here, Jez and I were taking turns to do, like, crosses into news breakfast, but, like, we would be in the streets of Windsor at, like, midnight because... um, And... That was when everyone was spilling out of the Windsor pubs. And so mainly what we were doing at night was just freezing and also trying to avoid all of these drunk clowns who are trying to get on Australian television. So I remember like I was doing this cross at midnight and we had to change our position three times because there were these four guys who had just poured out of this pub and they were incredibly loud. And they're like, where are you from, love? You know, and they really wanted to be on Australian television and they were quite determined, but determined in that sort of quite drunk way. So they were... Fairly easy to outwit. <laughs> but how did you get rid of them? I just, you know, said, look, there's Prince Harry or something. Like, I mean, they weren't, you know, super tricky to lose. But it was very funny. Um, my favourite moments of the whole um, wedding coverage was our friend Lisa Miller, who's the ABC London correspondent, got captured in a photograph um, shouting a question out to Prince Harry and this wall of sort of media and Lisa's there with the most sort of... Fishwife yelling face on. She's <laughs> like... <laughs> and he's going, oh, goodness me. <laughs> it was so good, yeah. It got snapped by some um, agency and they kind of tweeted. I'm like, <laughs> so then, so just, I'm enjoying this. So for the actual broadcast then, are you watching the BBC feed and then... It's coming through, so we're watching it um, and sort of commenting on it. And we had these, uh, we had the Danish broadcasters next door. They were super excited about it and really loud. So if you were watching you speak our Danish after watching Borgen, I know. So you know that thing where when you watch Borgen, after a while you think you can speak Danish. <laughs> you're like, "Duck for den," you know, like, and you're like, "I can't speak Danish, but I feel I can." Uh, anyway, it turns out that Meghan Markle in Danish sounds great. It's like we're hearing a lot of that. They were very loud. So if you heard a lot of Danish bleeding into our broadcast, that is why. Um, So a couple of random interesting things. Apparently, um, there is a rule once you join the royal family as a lady. You'll be interested in this because you're into this stuff. You have to wear nude stockings. (laughs) I saw that. Yeah. See, see, my friend Jo is like, I like Meghan Markle, but the second she wears a nude hose, I'm out. So she's basically just examining the calves of Meghan Markle at every point. What's wrong with a nude hose? It, we don't have enough time for that discussion. <laughs> hey, um, one of my favourite film writers is Anthony Lane in The New Yorker and every now and again he branches into other things and he's British and so they got him to write a big feature about the royal wedding, about the actual content of the ceremony. Right, I haven't read this. Um, it, I just... 
I mean, look, it's all. I mean, I was there. I, I was just sort of. <laughs> I had the first hand, so I just. That's right. People go. To, there, yeah. were, there was just, Oprah. There was yeah. the Beckhams. There was yeah. Noel Crabbe. Clooney's. Yeah. Um, the, the whole thing's well worth a read. That it's called Harry and Meghan look to the future, but some royals never change. Um, I just highlighted a few of the funniest lines to read to you. Um, so he's talking about Amal and George Clooney. So of George, you know, Amal's husband's her her suit, her husband's suit to judge by its tint of shimmering grey had been woven from the same material as his beard. <laughs> oh, so that's good. So contagious were the atmospherics, as one member of the palace staff described them, that even Victoria Beckham was affected. She didn't actually smile, but there were several moments when it looked as if she might. <laughs> But then he's also very clever, Anthony Lane. So have a look at this one. So, what I was occurred? very disappointed with the hats of Beatrice and Eugenie because they were tasteful. I, I just think there must be a civil suit that we can launch against them for not wearing crazy hats. I was just so <laughs> down about that. Anyway, um, he he noted what occurred today. In summary, was this: an American divorcee become king because of his paternal grandmother's father who only became king because his brother wanted to marry an American divorcee. Oh, so you'd be happy good. with that, wouldn't you? You could just retire, right? What of this, I um, interviewed this historian who um, was like really interesting and um, funny and we were talking about, I said, well, look, you know, is, do you think that, her name's Anna Whitelock, um, I said, do you think that given that everybody sort of really is into, like they're getting quite keen on this younger generation of royals now and a bit kind of like a bit bored of Prince Charles and so there's a bit of like, well, what if it just skipped a generation and what if you could just go from the Queen to, to Prince William? And she said, oh, it's just never, it's never going to happen because the experience of that the Queen um, saw of what her father went through being thrown into this job unexpectedly um, on account of the perfidy of his brother um, has made her really anti-abdication. She will serve for the rest of her life and and this historian's opinion is so will Prince Charles. And this, uh, this kind of creates this really modern conundrum for the monarchy, which is that like elevated modern life expectancy now means that, I mean, you might not have Prince William for 40 years. I mean, because the Queen could go another 10. Well, I was and thinking this the other day and thinking quite possibly, in fact, I would say probably we will not live to see King George. Sure, I mean, f absolutely guaranteed. But even King William could be like a fair way off, depending on how clean living you're planning to be over the next little while. <laughs> but I mean, isn't that interesting? Because in the old days, you could rely on monarchs to sort of die on the battlefield or, you know, have a real syphilis issue or, you know, just die young. And then you get a 12 year old, which is really exciting, you know? And our last monarch, I mean, like, she's now, she's served for 60 six years like who is in a job for that long she is the longest serving monarch in british history including victoria you know like she's completely atypical of the modern generation but like once she goes then you've got quite a bit of charles before you get anybody and the problem with this is right the older someone is by the time they become monarch, the more time they've had to make a complete hash of their private life. So it's a terrible situation. Um, 
The ceremony, you know, much was remarked about um, just that it broke with convention in lots of ways and, you know, which I thought was fantastic. Um, One of the things, probably the moment that I most enjoyed was um, the cellist, the young cellist who played, um, whose name was Sheku Kane Mason, um, who was just an incredible musician. Um, But he – so I did a bit of reading. 19 years old. Family of seven brothers and sisters, aged 8 to 21, all fantastic um, musicians. But also the first piece of music that he played, um, which I thought was strikingly beautiful and which I had not heard before, I um, checked out as well. It was called Sicilienne and it was by an 18th century composer who was contemporary of Mozart, a woman called Maria Theresia von Paradis. Wow, I did yeah. not know that. So how interesting that the sort of subversion went right through, you know, into the choice of music. So she was an Austrian as well. She lost her sight at a really early age. Salieri, who was Mozart's sort of main, you know, competition I guess was her teacher wow um, yeah I'd never even heard of her I didn't even know that there were female composers around um in that era but yeah Ooh, I like that kind of yeah I thought you would that's why yeah. I brought it for you thank you very much always looking after you and the preacher you of course was like this massively kind of like a depth charge oh. introduced like that 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 church was built in like the 1400s right so it's getting on and <clears throat> You know how, like, an English Church of England preacher generally sounds as though they're politely asking their way to the train station. Like, it's sort of a low mumble. (laughs) And this guy's like, yo, we're here to marry y'all, you know. And the expressions on the faces of all of these kind of major and minor royals like the queen was like she just did this big shrug and sigh and prince charles got really flushed and kind of like looked at his lap a lot and then beatrice in the boring hat was just kind of like (laughs) zara phillips was the the most i thought notable who was sort of looking very arch like this yeah and there was like it, it was went off like people were commenting on it all over the place oh my god this guy's going on and on like he spoke for 13 minutes which you know um for an episcopalian sermon is really short so the interesting thing was just like these guys had just never seen anything like this dude before and it was interesting to watch the social media response from americans just saying like guys this is just church right like this is church. Like, yeah. why are you so freaked out? It was notable in the cutaways because when it went to Meghan Markle's mum, she was just nodding and like appreciating it, and all of the sort of upper crust Brits were like, hmm. "Well, this is very rum, isn't it?" And I just thought it maybe I was sort of like laughing and kind of enjoying this sort of incongruity of it, but then afterwards I felt really sad about it because I just thought, "Oh man, like you know, like." That poor woman, I felt really sorry for her because she was so by herself, you know. Like she's turned up with jet lag to see her daughter and the first thing is like, oh, just brush your hair because you're off to see the Queen and then Prince Charles and then you'll be, you know, attending by yourself this ridiculous wedding at Windsor Castle, you know. And she was sort of at the end of the row. No one was really kind of chatting to her very much and I just thought the only time where I thought, oh, you don't look uncomfortable is when she was listening to that sermon. I am... I was wondering, look, you might know this or not, but um, what was the etiquette of who sat where? Because she wasn't in the front row. She was like three rows I know. And then George Clooney was in the royal area as well, which I think is pushing it. That's sort of weird. I thought (laughs) 
Charles in the cutaways I saw seemed very sweet to her and was sort of escorting her on the other arm. Yes, well, yes, good. Okay, well, I'm glad that someone was being nice to her. I just sort of thought she seemed a bit lonely. So you would have done like a lot of reading in preparation for this in case you had to pad and fill and stuff. Do you think – are there any interesting royal biographies? I think you've got to wait till they're quite dead before they get interesting. Like so, even then, like – because they're not – even when they're dead, you don't have access to, like, their innermost, you know, life. Well, okay. So I read Andrew Morton's biography of Meghan Markle. There's a sentence I never thought I'd be saying out loud. Uh, and it was quite – I mean, like, she's 36, right, and she's been on a TV show. Like, it's it's not – like, she's interesting, but it's, it's not – she would normally not have a biography written of her, right, particularly not by Andrew Morton, who, by, by the way, just cannot write. Like, it's such – it's so badly written. It's really – I just – he's sold so many billions of books – and I was reading it just thinking, oh, my God, this just needs an edit. Like, and, and there's quite a lot of, you know, and in her 11th year at school she studied, you know, classics and what she didn't, it was something else. But, like, there was a lot of detail about exactly which plays she was in in the drama club and I'm thinking, oh, Yornsky, like, this is not interesting. But, like, it's like you've got to pad it a bit um, because he didn't have access to her. And when the book came out, like, you know, an Andrew Morton biography, well, when he wrote that one about Diana, which was essentially him ghostwriting Diana, my story, which was sensational and interesting because it had it, – it was driving a purpose. It was briefed out by Princess Diana to let people know what the hell was going on inside there. So it was like a – almost like a – like an anthropological document as much as it was a memoir, a biography. Um, but this one was like it didn't have a lot of juice in it because it didn't have that human kind of purpose driving it. Um, and, in fact, when it came out, like the the first, like the major headline <gasps> that broke out of this thing was that she had posted her wedding ring back to her first husband. Like that, that was, you know, oh. Right, that's what that's the kind of lady she is, right? I'm thinking, well, at least you got it back. Well, yeah, Are I would scandalise by actually that. Actually, been married? Do you have to give it back when you've been married? I don't know. What, what do you think? No, I would say no. Like, well, she put it in a postpack, possibly registered post. I don't know. Um, him being a bad writer makes me think of good writers, which is two of my favourite writers died in the past fortnight: Tom Wolfe and Philip Roth. Okay, I'm sad about Tom Wolfe. Philip Roth, I still can't quite forgive you for liking him. Say, it's, I'm guessing because you think he's a misogynist. Rest in peace. Um, do, do you think? <laughs> what about how somebody somebody wrote, like, I haven't read that much about, look, I don't know, I just, I think life's a bit short. I read um, Portnoy's complaint and I just thought, oh, my, are you for real? Are you really for real? Like, all the women characters are like, well, this one's a nymphomaniac. And this one's a really controlling Jewish mother. And you're like, oh, okay, so I'm thinking that's your characters that you do for the ladies, is it? Like, I, Look, I, I saw a little anecdote this week and I just thought I, know, I knew that you would love it because, you know, every Philip Roth book, regardless of the age, whether they're, you know, Portnoy's complaint when he's writing about a young man lusting after women or whether it's every man or um, one of the later career books when it's an old man lusting after women. It's like – 
um, a man, insert Philip Roth's age at age of writing, <laughs> who lusts after a woman and has like bizarrely strong results. Well, I thought this was absolutely hilarious. In the Paris Review um, feature about his death, um, sorry, it wasn't the Paris Review, it was the um, New York Times, I think, their obit. They said, um, they were talking about the final books that he read. Oh, actually, that was an interesting thing too. They said that apparently in private, he was a gifted mimic and comedian and then his friends said that they thought he could have had a career as a stand-up comedian if he wasn't really yeah okay maybe i like him a bit more now is the writing i mean it does have comic moments but it's i wouldn't say it's funny it has comic moments i'd say but anyway one of the points they wrote in the obit was that the last one of the last fiction books he read was asymmetry by lisa halliday a book about a young woman who has a romance with an aging novelist (laughs) who bore an unmistakable resemblance to mr roth Funny, kind, acerbic, passionate, immensely well-read, a devotee of Zabar's and old movies. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. He did – look, I love him, but he did certainly have one note. But he did it really well. The thing that I liked about him a lot was that I think he uh, – I think those books, when you reread them, you find something new every time, which I think is the hallmark of a um, fantastic writer, that the books constantly shape-shift depending on where you're at in your own life so I highly rated him and then Tom Wolfe I think also was just incredible because of he, there's not that many people who have total mastery of non-fiction and fiction and you know most people in their career um, would have say you know one book that is the sort of world famous thing that sets their reputation and then they have other books that are good but you know not quite so um, prominent um, you know, Tom Wolfe had The Right Stuff, which was a defining book in a movement called The New Journalism, which was the rise of non-fiction written in a narrative style like fiction where you treat, treat it as characters and plot and so forth. Um, but also he had what I would say was the defining fiction of the 1980s, which was Bonfire of the Vanities. So that's incredible. The thing and, – and I find both of them absolutely riveting reads as well. Um, and then you have the electric Kool-Aid acid test as well, which is like an amazing account of Ken Kesey at the sort of psychedelia bus tour phase. Like I've been – Huge, been huge achievements. Um, but also I didn't realise this, how many um, – I think the New York Times again had a piece about how many phrases or um, things Tom Wolfe was the first usage of that had come into modern lexicon or that it had been little used or used in a particular area that then he put in a book and then they became just common parlance. So um, the right stuff is actually, you know, people didn't talk about somebody having the right stuff until he used, you know, called his book that and, and used it. Then some of the other ones were – um, these terms were used only in aviation circles until the right stuff came along. Pushing the envelope. Really? Yep. Huh. Screwing the pooch. <laughs> uh, and um, Bonfire of the Vanities, Master of the Universe. It had been used in something... Social x-rays as well. Unbelievable. Um, and so the New York Times had 150... Um, the 1970s being known as the me decade, he coined in a piece of writing for Rolling Stone or somebody... Um, just absolutely amazing. I love Bonfire of the Vanities and it's also like one of my favourite companion volumes. Like I like I like the novel and I also um, – the you know the movie was a disaster, right? Like yeah, it, was yeah. a, it was like one of the great stinkers of all time. Is that um, what The Devil's Candy is about? Yeah. yeah so that's my like companion volume that I love reading. This is um, – 
woman called Julie Salomon. She's a um, you know a, a film writer, and she um, when what's his name? What's that director's name? Who directed um, it? Um, Brian De Brian Palma. De Palma. De Palma. De Palma. Yeah. They gave the job of directing this movie to Brian De Palma um, and he just got this sort of limitless budget and it just – every single thing went wrong and it went so wildly over budget. It starred Tom Hanks and Melanie Griffiths and so on and um, it was a debacle. And um, Julie Salomon, the, the film writer, was um, granted access to the project, access to De Palma throughout and she was on set the whole time and so she's – written this account, an inside account of a movie just going just completely south with perfect access, which nobody revoked during the process. And De Palma, to his very great credit, like even after the film bombed disastrously, still continued to talk to her and gave her an exit interview and like which is a pretty like oh, that's noble quite generous, thing to do. Yeah. But Tom Wolfe appears like at just only a couple of instances throughout the book and she's asked asking him like how he feels about the 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 movie and that it's been a disaster and he just says well the check's still good like he's really <laughs> gracious about it but I do think that Wolfe also is this figure or was this figure who had this like he dressed crazily he had this incredible persona um, and was this sort of social figure around town. He had this cachet. Um, he was almost like a caricature of himself. That Truman Capote, really, right? A little bit, yeah. That 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 kind of superseded the mixed bag of of books that he wrote. I could just think those characters are sort of once in a lifetime, really. I reckon Bonfire of the Vanities is absolutely ripe for Netflix or somebody like HBO or somebody to do as like a six part. Hour. It would be, although I think maybe that like the race politics might be a bit outdated in there. Like, I mean, that's where they kind of ran into a bit of trouble with the movie as well, because the um, you know the movie they wanted to make it this happy ending. They wanted the kid to get better and like um, leave hospital and not be dead, which is yeah, <laughs> just. Yeah, we'll okay. Get them to work it yeah. out. Um, hey, also, I want to know you watched the post on your plane flight. I did. What did yeah, you think? as so you know, I post. had a long time in my flight. You did. And I was. This is the film about um, the Pentagon Papers and the Washington yeah. Post breaking it. Meryl Streep is Catherine Graham and Tom Hanks is Ben Bradley. If you were a keen listener of the podcast, you would have heard me have a little bit of a rant about it because I. Personal History by Catherine Graham is one of my favourite memoirs and I thought that I hated how Meryl Streep portrayed Catherine Graham. Yeah, as she's quite diffident. Yeah, she's diffident and she's a little bit bubble-headed. Um, th- and there just, was, she just was not. Yeah. There is, there's a turning point, you know, in the film where she tells them all to sod off and this is my company and I'm going to do what, um, you know, what, what I think's right. Um, yeah, I mean, like I, I – I'm always interested in films about newspapers because if you worked on a newspaper, you're always like interested to see how that trade sort of gets depicted. And, you know, the Pentagon Papers and the Post in that era era are um, really, you know, they are just giant kind of legends of newspaper craft, I suppose, craft. Um, so, yeah, I, I did think it was a bit weird that she was so wobbly. Um, and our friend Philip from The Americans is um, yeah. Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's a little treat for the I viewer. Tom Hanks was great as Ben Bradley. He was great. He's a, like seriously 
versatile actor, I reckon. And you know that he's got this book of short stories out, yes, which is really apparently, good, apparently really good. Yeah. Um, have you read it? Neither no. have I. I've got it, still haven't read it. How about Morgan Freeman being outed this week as the latest harasser? Have you not seen Are you that? for real? Yeah. <sighs> Sorry to break that news on stage. <laughs> 16 women. Just what? Six, eight, eight who claimed to have been harassed and eight who claimed to have witnessed harassing. Um, I don't know what the details are of it, but CNN had the story about it. So, and he's Morgan Freeman apologised and said, "Oh, if I've, you know, I've never meant to um, offend anyone or make them feel uncomfortable, and if I have, blah blah blah." See, this is like you know, life on planet movie star, don't you reckon? Like, I just think that these people end up in this incredibly weird environment. Where there's no social bounds on behaviour, like they, because they're surrounded by people who are like, oh, would you like a, would you like that water slightly warmed? Would you like, a, you know, what colour M and M's would you like in your bowl? Then you're kind of like, oh, I can do anything I want, can't I? Like that's cool. But it's so weird. Like I think, and I'm surrounded by people who are just thrilled to be in the same room as me. So if I grab a little bit of but yeah, but that's like I was just thinking surely that, that's like, an honour so for that person. We right? had out the back helping us, Ken, the stage manager, and Blake, who's doing um, lights and sound. Thank you very much to them both. Like I can't even imagine like the the idea that they'd be out the back and you'd go, oh, hey, uh, Blake, and sort of harass him. Like it just seems weird. Well, nothing about you, Blake. No, it's... no, you're adorable. I mean, the but concept. I, I also just think that there is a bit of a gender thing going on there as well. Like, I mean, we would sort of. Remember when that Louis C.K. Oh, yeah. oh, thing happened, and you're like, as if I'm going to ring up my like, yeah, like if you replaced say, like the the you know because one of the accusations against Louis C.K. was that um, somebody rang him to have their you know talk through their comedy routine or something, and they could hear him masturbating on the phone. Um, that was a woman who was at the other end. This and is classic sales. Actually. I said to crap, like, could you imagine, like, you know, some junior reporter rings you to get their scripts up and you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to rip one out. Like, it's just <laughs> absolutely incomprehensible behaviour. Yes, I think we can all agree on that. But, like, <laughs> Morgan Freeman, oh, man, that's very yeah, tough. Sorry, I that's know. That's very tough. Um, that's Ugh. the only person that I feel like I could be – like there's one don't person that I think – uh, Tom Hanks. I'd be if, – if Tom Hanks came out as a sex pest, I'd be like, oh, just are you joking, Tom Hanks? So please, to God, Tom Hanks, I hope you've been all right. So one thing I read last night like was the new uh, – the post that was written by Moses Farrow about, you know, like the Woody, Mia, Dylan, you know. That's, I mean like – they are such an intriguing family for like obvious reasons, but also the kids are all really so. Moses Farrow is now a therapist who is the main outspoken um, member of the Farrow um, children, who says, "Look, Woody's been stitched up. He didn't do anything to my sister." And of course, Ronan Farrow now works um, for he works for the New Yorker, is he, or the New, um, York, New York Times he, Magazine? I can't I remember. Think he's that like, he, I think he freelances because he files right. for different people. So, and he is like a full um, investigative. He's me too. Read his backstory. He's a genius. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. A, like incredibly smart and persistent. Um, investigative reporter with a special interest in exposing. I might add, he's coming to the Melbourne Writers Festival. Yeah, that would be worth seeing. Um, anyway, look, this is a kind of classic of the genre. Moses has written something like ten thousand word account of his recollection of what happened on that particular day where Woody um, Allen is supposed to have abused um, his 
daughter, Dylan Farrow, and he he, as as I say, is a is a woody defender. Um, you can read long accounts from all of the members of this family and swing backwards and forwards. They're also completely passionate about their beliefs and recollections. It's quite extraordinary. I don't look. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that's very difficult to pick. But I'm always surprised by my capacity to be fully convinced by something that any one of that family has written and then just go, whoa, I don't know. A couple of people who are going to grab these microphones and pass them around. So if you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up and then we'll answer whatever you want to ask us. Yell out. Yes. <laughs> Laminated men? Oh. <laughs> oh, so the one that you're allowed to like have a fling with in the like constraints of your marriage because your partner couldn't oh. possibly um, complain. So the question was um, just <laughs> in deference to my status as a mile-high club member and <laughs> inveterate frequent flyer and uh, sipper of mimosas at uh, 10,000 feet, uh, who would my laminated uh, people, men be? Is that laminate? I've, I've messed that up, haven't I? Uh, so, well, look, I always, I always like the nerds. Like, I, I do not like the beefcakes. I'm not like, you know, the rock, which is, um, sales. <laughs> uh, like, she just likes a it really, like, rock. you do, it is the rock. It's not the um, rock. and, like, she likes muscle. I like, you know, weedy, weedy, like, so mine would be like, I had this massive crush on John Cusack, like, for many, many years. Yeah. And, like... Ed Norton. I can't. Sizzle. But it's also like the thing. <laughs> also, I really like Owen Wilson just because he's so kooky and handsome. Who's saying no? No? I wouldn't really go there because I think he'd be a cad. Super cad. But like this is all theoretical, right? Um, the thing that's so funny is like so if you get a leave pass, I mean you guys don't know her partner Jeremy, but basically if you get a leave pass, you're going for some guys exactly like Jeremy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm single, so I don't need a leave pass. <laughs> okay. I can just ask these gentlemen out. Um, I would you just go need a door pass. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't excuse you from the question, friend. Uh, Idris Elba, I absolutely oh. love. Oh, look at the reaction. <laughs> so, do you know what? Like, I was so close <laughs> to having an Idris Elba clang because... Did you know that he was staying in the same place as Lisa Miller was staying? I you were going to say the Express in Slough. I was staying, I, this is not a word of a lie, I was staying in the Holiday Inn Express <laughs> Slough. So not even the Holiday Inn Slough. Yeah, the downbeat version. I saw a gang of youths having an, a fight with hammers. <laughs> that is not even made up. And I think, you know, we can say Ricky Gervais set the office in Slough for a reason. Yeah, cause... I know. It's... it's it's full on. But um, so James Glenday, who um, is a reporter at the London Bureau, was staying at, like, another place, uh, also very reasonably priced. And, uh, um, and he ran into Idris Elba. And he's like, Idris Elba! And although he was, I'm sure, much cooler than that, really. But, uh, wow. And wow. anyway, we were talking about it, like, and he was very, very, very pumped by this um, development. And then we were saying, like, do you reckon he's here for the wedding? I'm like, oh, no, I'm pretty sure he's just staying in Slough for, like, recreational <laughs> purposes. Um, I also like Guy Pearce. 
Um, you, you are very soggy about Guy Pearce. And then you got to interview him and I'm like, like are you going to do pregnant. anything bad? Oh, you were eight months <laughs> yeah, pregnant. Yeah, it was yeah, very unfortunate. Um, I interviewed Barnaby Joyce when I was eight months pregnant and when we did... Was there the same sort of sexual tension as with me and Guy yeah. Pearce? <laughs> Pretty much. The funny thing about that, though, is that when we turned up to Barnaby's house and it was in St George in, Brisbane, in, in central Queensland... Um, I knocked on his door and on camera his response, like he opened the door and he looked at me and went, who did that to you? (laughs) And he goes, nothing to do with me, which in retrospect, I don't think it actually went to air because it was so odd and I was just like, what? But then, I know. Anyway, so Guy Pearce. Guy Pearce. Did you, did you, did you, did you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. Um... The most handsome man I reckon I've ever seen in real life is um, Tim Finn, the former lead singer of Split Ends. He um, has just got the most beautiful sort of square-jawed face and he's got all that hair now, which is really silver, and he just looks very... um, He was dressed conservatively, but he had an amazing pair of green shoes and cool socks on. So you've got this sort of just lovely... Nice looking gentleman, but just with a hint of the rocker with still. A bit of yeah. socks appeal. And it was lovely, but he just, I just sort of, just, uh, boom tish. We're here all night. Try the veal. Um, no, I was just looking at him thinking, geez, what a beautiful looking man. He, he was really um, very handsome. I could go on like this all night. <laughs> all right. Um, the Rock. The Rock, yes. What about over here? <laughs> Yell out. Uh. So the question is, <laughs> you've done some very interesting interviews of late, including with Hillary Clinton, clang, um, and uh, James Comey, of course, clang. But uh, the question, would like to hear some more about your time with Paul McCartney. This is the part that's known as a uh, rest break for me, so I'll be leaving <laughs> the stage because this could take a while. Um. Look, that was my favourite interview of all time because I'm just such a massive Beatles fan. Um, and she's, she's, she's unusual like that. She really likes <laughs> yeah, the Beatles. Yeah. Um, as, you know, we've discussed on the podcast before, it can be uh, hazardous to meet people of whom you are a big fan because if they are unpleasant or they, you know, put, for whatever reason... you little part of you dies. little part of you dies. Like that time you met The Rock. <laughs> Um, and I, I felt really worried thinking, because I just love the Beatles so much and I, I have had so many years of just great pleasure from their music. I just thought, imagine if I, and you know, I'd seen Paul McCartney overseas and it meant a lot to me and I just thought, wow, what if I meet Paul McCartney and then every time I listen to, you know, Abbey Road or I'm in the shops and a Beatles song comes on, all I think about is the time Paul McCartney was an arsehole to me. Um, luckily, Paul she McCartney. She likes to overthink these things in advance, I've noticed. <laughs> Luckily, he was absolutely lovely. Um, one of my friends in high school, Tim, introduced me to the Beatles and so I rang him and said, listen, um, this is going to seem like a really weird offer but do you want to come to Perth with me because I'm going to interview Paul McCartney and I just can't think of anyone who it would mean as much to as you. Um, and so he just said, God, yes, when? Um, and so, It's like the worst act of bastardry for like your 20-year school reunion. Like you're just like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah. So anyway, I took Tim <laughs> to see Paul McCartney. <laughs> so, Hang out with Paul McCartney. So Tim, um, we pretended Tim was my like manager or something so he could come too. And then it was... You should have said driver. It was just... <laughs> 
so great because we, we sort of got there early and it was one of those days where everything went right. Um, you know, the plane was on time, the makeup artist did an awesome job, um, Tim got there in time, the weather was beautiful, we got to the stadium, they said, you know, we're not sure what time, you know, um, Sir Paul will arrive, so you might have to wait around for a long time, fine. He, he got there within, you know, an hour and a half, so we didn't have to wait around. And then we stood, um, first of all, they gave us, before um, Paul arrived, a tour of the stage and everyone was amazing. And they had, you know, all the guitars out the side and so his roadies, they've all been with him for years and years, um, showed us the guitars. They'd be like, this is the one he played on Let It Be and this is the one he played on whatever and it just this is the one he used for, on to play yesterday on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, it was just mind-blowing. Then we went around to where the Magical Mystery Tour piano is and they said I could have a turn, which was just overwhelming. Um, so I was just beside myself. Then, so... So Paul arrives, we go back inside, he comes on stage and then they start rehearsing and they say, come out the back and you can stand on the side of the stage and watch the rehearsal. Anyway, I was standing there with Tim and we were watching and they were doing Day Tripper and Tim just said to me, we are watching Paul McCartney rehearse and it was just, it was so incredible and then we went on stage and I interviewed him and then um, he was lovely and I usually try with interviews with people to not show that if I'm a fan, I try to just be professional and not show my thoughts about it. Um, and with Paul McCartney, I tried really hard to just do a really straight interview and I'd sort of thought about, you know, would I say anything and I decided that I would just because it did mean so much to me and I felt like people watching at home would also feel like, wow, you know, you got, she got to meet Paul McCartney. So um, at the end I said, you know, Sir Paul, um, I have been really lucky in my life and I've got to in meet and interview many incredible people from the Dalai Lama to Aung San Suu Kyi. Clang, 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 clang. <laughs> Elton John to Patti Smith. Clang, clang, clang. <laughs> the <But> Rock. <laughs> <laughs> but I have never interviewed somebody of whom I am as big a fan as you. And thank you so much for all that music. I was nearly crying. And he said, oh, love, give us a hug. <laughs> <laughs> Um, was it one of those ones where you wouldn't let go and then after a while he's like, pat, 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 yes, okay then. Then we got a photo and, and I start snipping I, his hair a bit. I look so happy in the photo. I swear I look happier than on my own wedding day. Like I'm just <laughs> beaming with joy and I reckon I just – I was walking around on cloud nine for just days. Even now sometimes if I feel a bit sad, I pull out the promo for that episode and I just get, and it includes where he hugs me. I just go, oh, God, that was so great. Um, yeah, it was awesome. And then the concert. <laughs> Sorry, just blacked out for a second there. Where were you? Okay, this is the last thing. <laughs> and then the concert. Are you satisfied with the comprehensive <laughs> response? You're, yeah, okay. Yep, keep going. The concert was just everything that you would hope for. He, no matter what era you're a fan of Paul McCartney, if you liked Wings, if you liked the Beatles, whatever, whichever album of the Beatles you liked, um, he played something that everybody would have appreciated. He was on stage for two and a half hours, which for a guy who's like in his 70s was amazing. Um, and so it was just the greatest experience. I loved it. And so many people have come up to me more than any interview I've ever done. People just came up to me all the time for weeks and weeks afterwards. Even occasionally now someone will come up and mention it and they'll say, wow, I just wanted to say, you know, how much I enjoyed that Paul McCartney interview because I think everyone was living a bit vicariously through me. Whew, and I'm done. <laughs> See?
They love Paul McCartney too. Favourite McCartney song? Oh, God. I know I'm just going to flip you an unfair question because you've just like droned on for like <laughs> 25 minutes. That is like just asking who your favourite child is. Probably uh, maybe I'm amazed. Um, I also really like My Love and I really like Here, There and Everywhere. <laughs> I really like a lot of them. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe one more question and we should Ask go answer, because yeah, we one more question. are going to sign anyone... books outside All right, there's somebody being pointed at over uh, a waving, waving man you seem to have been waiting for a while. Nice and loud. Oh, I, I kind of got an absolutely uh, – the question is, who's the most difficult person to interview? Um, Bob Catter. <laughs> I mean, I would back him internationally against anybody. I agree. Because, like, so people often say to me, oh, you've got to go and do Bob Catter for Kitchen Cabinet because, like, he's hilarious and lots of things. But he is impossible to interview because he's like a dog off a leash. Like, there's no – there's no consecutive thought going on there. Like, you can't get anything going by way of conversation because he's like... <laughs> and, like, he'll be talking about, you know, um, sugar and then he'll be on ethanol and then he'll be on... and you'll be, or, or he'll be telling some joke or something. You'll be laughing along and then he'll say, no, but seriously, every 30 seconds a farmer commits suicide. You're like, oh... Oh, right. Like, it's just... It's a real roller coaster, and you can't respond and you can't... Uh, keep track and you certainly can't edit it like it's like a it's just yeah that is that exactly is who I would have said really I 100% yeah. agree and for the exact all those same reasons that you articulated I am really scared if we ever do land an interview with Donald Trump because it would be like interviewing Bob Catter See, that, I'd still do it but it'd be it's actually a brilliant technique you know like it's a and Clive Palmer is quite similar because um, just crackers and also I think probably more so than Bob certainly like a God. full egomaniac but like a giant child which is I think what Trump is like as well <sighs> so you don't actually get any register or like where you can establish a foothold from which to sort of clamber to the next point you, you, there's none of that going on like you it's know it's just made my heart sink then as you've said that I've just realized because I got an email about it yesterday that I glimpsed at and ignored I've got live on Monday night Clive Palmer Tune in. Good luck with that, love. Do you want me to see if McCartney's available? <laughs> Maybe Ringo? Oh, even The Rock. <laughs> We've been Sales and Crab. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>